This episode is sponsored by World History Encyclopedia, one of the top history websites on the internet. I love the fact they're not a wiki. Every article they publish is reviewed by the editorial team, not only for being accurate, but also for being interesting to read. The website is run as a non-profit organization, so you won't be bombarded by annoying ads and is completely free. It's a great site, and don't just take my word for it, they've been recommended by many academic institutions, including Oxford University. Go check them out at worldhistory.org, or follow the link in the episode description. In this episode, I speak to a real-life Top Gun pilot, Mike Manazin. He speaks about his time as a pilot and his rise to the rank of Rear Admiral during a 34-year career in the military, during which he served time in the Gulf Complex and he commanded the famous USS Nimitz. Mike has a new book out, Learn How to Lead to Win, and while it includes details of his death-defying military career, it also serves as a useful tool to help leaders in all walks of life to become more successful. Hey Mike, thanks for joining me. So like many civilians, I learnt about call signs and nicknames for pilots through the Top Gun films, where we had Tom Cruise's Maverick and Iceman and so on. But to start the interview, I have to ask, because I have learned that your call sign was nasty, which obviously can have several connotations. So how did you end up with that nickname? Call signs are funny, but they're funny because they're nicknames and they're often viewed as a nickname. But what really the reason for call signs is communications brevity over the radio. You're Dan, I'm Mike. You know, we might have three Dans in the flight or five Mikes in the strike. And if somebody comes on the radio and says, hey, Mike, you don't know who you're talking to. So there's a tactical reason for that. So everybody gets a call sign and it's usually one or two syllables. The airplane has a call sign and the person has a call sign. So if Nasty and Bob are in the arrow one, you know, arrow one being the airplane and somebody talks to the airplane and then somebody says nasty on the radio or Bob on the radio, they're talking directly to the person. Call signs start when you're in tactical aviation, they start from the very beginning and are looking for something to call you. I got my call sign back in the training command. And when you're down there, unless you already have a nickname that kind of fits a call sign, you know, maybe somebody, you know, you just called bot from the day you were born or something or gig or something like that. If you're already got kind of a nickname thing, you know, maybe they'll use that. And so you just kind of tell them what it is. And so in the training command, when I was flying and the training command for the listeners is where we learn how to fly Navy jets. I started in a T-34 then I graduated to a T-2 Buckeye, which is a, an old trainer aircraft, and then a TA-4J Skyhawk. And it's when I was flying the Skyhawk that we started getting into tactical flying where call signs made a difference. And so I had a mustache, big, huge mustache. And so it was stash for a while. I was like, all right, that, that's fine, stash. So they put stash on the board, you know, so you have a call sign up there. Well, this one instructor thought that my last name, which is pronounced Manazer, you know, it was kind of funny. And he would go, you know, your name sounds like menage a trois. And you can't say anything either. I mean, you can't go, hey, that's dumb or I don't like it or whatever, because then you, you like earn it forever. So they put that up on there and you got to shorten it. So they call me trois on the radio, write it up on the board. They thought it was kind of funny. I got my little name tags as menage a trois. So maybe a 
couple of weeks goes by and this one instructor thinks pretty damn funny. And so my wife and I, Kelly, uh, we were newly married at the time down in flight school and we'd go to the officer's club on Fridays to have free beer and hors d'oeuvres because the, that's when the wingings were. And of course, we didn't make a lot of money then. So that's kind of what our what our Friday evening meal and date were. So anyway, we're down there. We're at the club. We're standing in a circle drinking beer. And this woman comes up and she kind of likes call signs. And so she's looking at the name tags in this little circle of aviators, of which I'm one. And she's going around and there's, you know, there's Ace and there's Kid. And then the guy right next to me, his name is Mike Matheny. He was a, a Marine aviator. And his call sign kind of close to his last name was Martini. And then she gets to me and she goes, Manaj, uh, that's nasty. And Martini goes, that's it. Nasty. That's it. New call sign. And so on Monday, you know, I went and got a new name tag, said nasty. And I went to the next flight brief and we put nasty up on the board. And the instructor goes, eh, nasty. Uh, okay. And I took that call sign with me, Dan, all the way to Miramar. And through 36 years of flying, I never did anything to earn another call sign. Okay, as a civilian who is afraid of commercial flying, the idea of being confined in a claustrophobic cockpit, maneuvering at high speed, and knowing not just that a mistake could be deadly, but that the craft you're on costs $75 million, that is absolutely terrifying and anxiety-inducing to me. But one of the things I really like in your book, Lead to Win, is that you're very candid about the stress and the fact that things didn't always go well. One story in particular stood out to me, and that's an occasion when you were trying to land an aircraft on a moving target of an aircraft carrier in the dark of night, and it took multiple attempts to succeed. Can you just tell me about that incident and what you as a pilot and later as a leader learned from it? First of all, my book, you know, Learn How to Lead to Win, it's, it's a little bit of a clunky title, but the learn piece is how do you lead people as a person, as a human? How do you lead from your own personality and, and your own strength of influence and not with a title? And the book is, as you read, and I hope the listeners do get a chance to read it, it's full of failure. And it's full of trials and tribulations to get to, you know, the point at which I was flying a Tomcat off the ship. Of course, I, I went to Top Gun in 1985. I mean, I was a lieutenant in the Navy. I was feeling pretty big. I was pretty sure of myself to the point. And you also saw a story in there. I jumped out of a Tomcat in 1987 and I had about, about a thousand hours in the airplane. You get pretty sure of yourself in there. It's like Olympic sport, professional sports. You get knocked back quite a lot. You can see, you know, when, when you get hit with something. So the book is all those kind of stories. And you're just learning the whole time and you're testing your limits. And, and the reason that I say there are no atheists in carrier aviation is you're coming aboard at night and that's scary as heck, man. When I got to be the commanding officer of VF-31 flying F-14Ds with a really good heads up display, night landings barely got comfortable. And I had about 3,000 hours in the airplane, almost 1,000 total landings and probably a third of that in night landings. And it's just never fun. I mean, it's hard. It's dark and it's freaking scary. And you're just keyed up the whole time. You're like this total ball of energy, total focus on what you're doing. There's no real fear. There's no fear for your life. You're quaking and you don't know what to do. There's no fight or flight or freeze. You don't freeze. You're fighting the whole time. It's your get more and more and more used to the environment you're in. So like you said, 
you know, a top gun and there's airplanes going by everywhere. And there's in the training program that the U.S. Navy uses for naval aviation and, and getting your wings of gold and then going from there. You really get trained in the environment such that it's you kind of know your whereabouts. You kind of know what's in front of you. You learn how to think at five miles a minute, which is 300 miles an hour, you know, so 300 knots. You're thinking ahead of the airplane. I know that when early on, when I got into, you know, the backseat of a Tomcat for a ride when I was a student, I barely knew anything about the airplane, totally unfamiliar really trying to figure the airplane out and kind of looking outside and even not flying the airplane from the back seat, very difficult to keep that situational awareness. You at first you're unfamiliar with the complexity and then you learn how to do that. And so you kind of learn as you're going. The night you're talking about when I couldn't get aboard, I eventually did get aboard, but I felt like I couldn't get aboard. We call that a night in the barrel. And we say everybody has a night in the barrel. And so I only had one. As your listeners probably know from the technical part, we land at full power. As soon as the airplane touches down, you go full power. Well, this one particular night, very black, very, very dark. You can hardly ever tell where the water and the sky are. Carriers, this little lighted box, you know, the metaphors, it looks like a postage stamp. And, you know, it looks like a garage way out there. And if you little lighted garage way out there in the future, you're going to fly into and crash. There's not a lot of cues. And so you're really flying your instruments hard. And you have no sense of going down or going up. All, all of a sudden, the picture just changes. If the deck's moving, this particular night, it wasn't moving very much at all. It was just me that couldn't really see what's going on. But if the deck's moving, all you see is that little square is moving around. And it'll be in front of you. And then it'll be off to the left. And it'll be off to the right. And you're chasing the thing. Drives you crazy. If you have any kind of vertigo... You know, you got the leans or something like that. It makes it even worse because every time you look outside of the ship, you, you want to like right yourself. You can't do that. Physiological forces on your ears and your, and your brain and stuff because you can't see anything. So it didn't give you any backup. And as I got more and more experience, I knew how to correct somebody who was doing this was I would start my approach at, at about three quarters of a mile. So you do a straight in approach at night. You start at 20 miles and you come in. If you go around a bunch of times, you turn it at about five miles and start to descend at three miles. So you're on this glide path all the way down to the carrier. If you do it right, you're on a three-degree glide path all the way down until you touch down. And what you do is when you're flying the instruments from, let's say, either 20 miles or three miles or five miles, all the way down to three-quarters of a mile, when you look outside and you pick up the visual cues, you are using your instruments. And so that transition from the instrument scan in the cockpit, where you're keeping your, your uh, rate of descent correct, the angle of attack of the airplane correct, the lineup with the ship, you're doing all that via instruments and you're watching your gauges. And then you look outside and you have to do a transition scan. And we teach students this all the time. Is the strength of your transition scan is what's most important. So you can't just look up and go, okay, I know where I am. Because the visual cues won't match where you are. You automatically think you're high. It looks like you need to come down. And so you, the tendency is to take power off. And so that particular night, what I was doing repeatedly was I'd get to the start. It's called the start at three quarters of a mile. And I'd have just a little bit too much rated descent. And I'd come down a little low. And I wouldn't see the meatball come down until too late. And I'd see the low or the LSOs will say, don't go low or add some power. And I would fly up through the glide path and float over the wire. You know, what we call it way later on when I felt myself doing that sort of same thing when I was very experienced, I knew how to push the nose forward and yank the stick back and it would drop the hook into the wires. But this time I was just a student. 
And so I kept flying through the glide slope up. I'd get low in the middle, which is about half a mile. And as I got in close a quarter of a mile from the ship, my glide slope was not steep enough to land on the ship. So I'd fly over the wires and land long. That happened to me. I went around four times. So they sent me to the, the refueler, the tanker overhead, took a bunch of gas, came down, boltered another time more. There was a total of seven times that I did this. You're just done, you know, because just one landing at night, you know, it's already stressful. Now I'm going around six more times than normal. We get lower on gas. I go back up to the A6 tanker. I fill up the airplane with gas. And now we've drained the tank and he's going to come down and land. And then that's it. It's just us. There's nobody else airborne. We're a thousand miles from anywhere. I can't go anywhere but the ship. So I come around the next time, do exactly the same thing and bolter after the second tank. There's a guy in my backseat named Tim Cowden in the book. His call sign's AWOL because he, he missed the ship's movement a couple of times. You know, great call sign. Anyway, he wasn't a guy I usually flew with. Our crew coordination that night wasn't everything that I needed. And sometimes you get a courtesy call from the backseat, like scan the ball right as you get to the ship because you really want to see where you're going to land. And so everybody looks to the ship. And I would have my normal Rio radar intercept officer say, scan the lens or look at the ball or something like that as I cross the ramp. So I'd look over there and make sure I made that last correction just right. But our crew coordination wasn't good that night. He's a great Rio, but we weren't just clicking. We go around six times, total silence in the backseat. So we're lifting off and I'm like, I have no idea how to get this airplane in board. I don't know. I can't figure it out. And I'm sitting there going, man, I'm going to fail here. I'm going to have, we're going to have to eject alongside the carrier. I can't get aboard. So now I'm thinking about what it's going to be like to eject at night, you know, a dark ass night. Somebody's going to come pick us up and stuff. So we're climbing out, going up to the altitude to turn down again for the seventh approach. And I asked AWOL, I said, AWOL, what are you thinking about back there? And he goes, ejection. <laughs> so we came around and I trapped the next time. So maybe that motivation, you know, from him was, you know, I listened extra hard and, and I got aboard that time. But even experienced people, and I wasn't that experienced. I was a nugget first cruise. I was into cruise about three months or so. I had successfully night called in the Tomcat. I knew how to land on the carrier, but just every once in a while, the conditions conspire to make it just right. really hard. Usually though, it's not you, it's the ship. So usually something's happening with the ship. And so you're really looking to, you know, save your gas, your hair's on the back of your neck, your antenna's got to be up all the time. And we used to have this quote that the ship's trying to kill you. Another incredible story from your book details an airborne A6 on which the navigator partially ejected. You were on the deck and it was your job to somehow guide this plane to safety. Tell me about that experience. It was in uh, July of 1991 on the USS Abraham Lincoln, and I was the senior landing signal officer. And so the nickname for LSO is landing signal officers is paddles, because in the in the days of World War II in Korea, when they first started landing airplanes, it paddles would be men out there and they'd hold these cloth paddles that you could see because you were flying basically highway speeds. And you could see and he would give signals with the paddles. Well, after Korea, we started talking to people on a radio. And so we give radio calls, you know, like power, which mean to add power or you're high, which would give an indication you're high or right for a lineup, which means we want the airplane to come to the right. And so instead of a visual signal, you're telling somebody that on the radio. So I was a landing signal officer. And in that particular time, I was the senior landing signal officer on the Abraham Lincoln. So I was in charge of training all of the other junior LSOs. And there's about 30 landing signal officers from the different squadrons. And you form teams and the teams alternate, you know, every day. 
And then me and my partner, Senior LSO, we went every other day on the LSO platform, which is back on the left side of the ship. And you get enough experience flying and being an LSO that you can look at an airplane and tell where that airplane is. I can tell whether he's high or low or left or right. And I can look at the cues on the airplane and listen to the engines to determine what uh, the pilot's doing with the airplane so you can talk. Now, this particular story with the A6 was an extremely non-standard landing. Usually when the landing signal officers are landing the airplanes, the ship's captain and bridge team set the ship into the wind for the conditions that they're doing. And they just know to keep the ship where it is. The landing signal officers accept the conditions that are given to them. And normally airplanes might have a, an emergency or a guy might, he might even be single engine or the flap configuration is non-standard. Waving is a slang term for being an LSO talking to an airplane. So we're used to waving airplanes with problems. In fact, when I first started in the 80s and in through the 90s, we had F-14s and A-7s and A-6s and S-3s. I mean, there were all kinds of emergencies all the time. But this particular A-6, I I think it's the only one ever. And what happened is A-6 Intruder was also configured as an airborne refueler. So they would carry a fuel tank we could refuel from. This particular airplane flown by a guy named Mark Baden and his right seater is Keith Gallagher. They're hanging out overhead to give gas to anybody that needs. Typically, what would happen in these refueling stores is there's a there's a couple of fuel valves in there that allow fuel to transfer into and out of the tank. And they'd get condensation on them. And then when you take the airplane to altitude, the valve would freeze and it get a little bit of ice on it. It would freeze like shut. It wouldn't transfer gas. The procedure was literally very violent, positive and negative G's shoving on the airplane. So pull positive G's and while the airplane's pulling positive, immediately shove negative G in there to put gravity and force on this valve. Mark Baden, the pilot, was doing that to free up this valve, and it turns out that Keith Gallagher's seat, ejection seat, had a malfunction in it. There was a stress crack in the part of the seat that held it to the pole that it sits on. When the ejection sequence happens, the seat rides up that pole. The retaining pin that was holding the seat into this ejection pole actually was hitting this piece of metal that kept it in one place. That metal fractured. It broke. The next negative G, the seat actually rode up the pole 18 and a half inches, which is enough to fire the drogue gun, which pulls the drogue chute out, which pulls the main chute out. So the drogue gun is a shotgun shell. It blew out the canopy. The drogue parachute goes out into the windstream. The main chute goes in the windstream, gets all the way out, and then blows straight back in the windstream and wraps around the tail. Keith's seat, as it starts to come up and out of the airplane, Now the parachute just yanks it straight back 90 degrees and it locks him. It locks the seat. He's out up to his chest. I had just finished waving a whole recovery. So me and the LSO team is about five o'clock in the afternoon. And we were just to the east of uh, Singapore in the South China Sea. Very hot, humid day. We had just gone the entire length of the ship debriefing everybody. And now I'm up front and all of a sudden the ship starts to heal really far over. And over the general announcing system, I hear... Emergency pull forward, emergency pull forward, CAG paddles to the platform, which is emergency pull forward means get all the airplanes out of the way. Somebody needs to land and CAG paddles is me. You know, the air wing LSO is is called CAG paddles and I needed to to get back to the LSO platform a thousand feet that way. I was up there having a little peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a little glass of Kool-Aid. We called it bug juice. I put the bug juice down, walked out, took another bite of sandwich, threw it overboard, jogged back to the four wire 
as the ship's in this huge turn and they're dragging airplanes out of the way, kind of getting around me as I'm running back. The senior enlisted guy meets me and he's at the four wire and he says, he yells into my ear, A6 partial ejection. I said, oh, okay. I started to think and I think, okay, the canopy's gone. The pilot's still with the airplane. He can't hear very well. So I'm going to have to you know, do that. And gee, I hope they go get the Rio. And then he talks on his microphone. It's called, called a mouse. And he puts the microphone down and talks into his mouse. And he flips it up and he says, the BN's still with the airplane. His feet are in the cockpit. I'm like, dude, <laughs> what? Go running over the LSO platform. That's what he says. I have no idea what this is. I'm thinking he's like ha literally hanging out like his feet are the only thing in the cockpit. And I can't even picture what this would look like or what we're going to do, but we got to land the airplane. So the ship's in a huge turn. I get over there. There's nobody on the LSO platform except for the person manning it. I grab the phone. I look out and the ship is in this huge turn. And the listeners, you know, if they're, let's say they're standing where I am looking backwards, the ship is leaned over to our left. It is in a huge turn to the left, my right shoulder. The ship is heeling right, but we're leaning over like that, looking backwards. And the ship's in this huge left-hand turn, trying to get, get into the wind to recover the airplane. And way out here, over to our right, about the two o'clock position, I see an A6 trying to get over to land on the ship. So ship's in a big turn. The A6 is trying to intercept the wake. And I start thinking about how am I going to get the ship to steady up so he can land and come aboard? And so I'm watching him. And I say, hey, paddles contact, I gotcha. And you know, what's going on? Looking good, keep it coming. And Mark Baden, you know, Roger on the radio. And I look out and there's like this bump on top of the airplane. He's a mile and a half out. It's like a black bump. And so now I'm watching him intercept the ship. And I know that I got to start to think about when's the captain going to steady the ship up so, so Mark gets some kind of an approach because he's coming and everybody's out of the way and we got a clear deck or we're, they're going to give us clear deck when the ship stays out and we get the winds. And normally, again, the ship gets into the wind and then they give us a green deck to land airplanes. Well, it's all me, you know, as it turns out. And so I start looking at the signal flags up on the island, way up on the halyards on top of the island, kind of judging where the wind was coming from and looking at Mark. And so I start talking to Mark about flying his airplane and talking to the captain about what to do with the ship. And when I saw the flags get to just about the edge of the limits where I could take the airplane without too much crosswind, I told the captain three times, steady up. I'll take the winds. And I said, hey, I got it. I started talking to Mark about what to do the airplane. So the landing signal officer school actually uses this as a case study of paddles telling the captain what to do with the ship, you know, and taking control of the airplane. And, and the story in the book is I was completely comfortable with my skill set. And I was completely comfortable taking the whole situation. And if I had accepted too much crosswind and Mark, the pilot, had come in close quarter mile and taken off a bunch of power, he could have hit the ramp and you know, the whole airplane would have exploded. Both those guys would have been killed or had to eject. And Keith, already halfway ejected, would not have been able to eject and maybe even some more injuries. But I bought the whole approach. And so by telling the captain, and it's really cool on that you can hear on the recording, there's a little recording of me talking to the airplane on the web. And you hear this big God voice. The captain goes, steady it up. So they steady up. The pictures of the airplane coming across the ramp still show the wake. So he steadied the ship up right as me and the pilot got the airplane aligned with the center line of the ship. And he's coming across the ramp with Keith hanging out. I'm looking up. So if, we're, if, if your listeners are waving the airplane with me and we're looking up to our left 10 o'clock high, and we're looking up at that airplane crossing the ramp at about three stories above deck. So you're looking up about 30 feet. 
And I see Keith's face angled over towards me. He had lost his helmet and oxygen mask in the wind blast. And his bare face is looking at me and his eyes are closed. And I think he's dead. Right then I'm looking at his face and I think he's dead. Oh my God, that's a dead guy. And so I keep talking to Mark and as, as the airplane goes by me, there's this long streak down the back, which I'm convinced is Keith's blood all the way down the back of the airplane. And it turns out that was the orange panel of the parachute as it was down the turtle back of the airplane wrapped around the tail. I think he's dead. He lands and the combination of me trying to get him to come down before the first wire, which is normally too early, and him wanting to come down for the first wire. The airplane bounced and the hook skipped the one, the two, and the three. And I'm yelling at an attitude, which means to pull back on the stick. You hear the recordings, is attitude, attitude, attitude. He's yanking back on the stick and the hook catches the four wire, kind of just, you know, rolls through it and he's yanking back on the stick and they stop. And so I just kind of toss down everything and the air boss is yelling everybody to get off the deck. So I go down to the ready room and I go, hey, see the skipper and the commanding officer, Jocko Worthington, I said, man, that sucks. He goes, yeah, it sucks. He's down medical getting sewn up. I go, he's alive? He goes, yeah, he's alive. So I go running down to medical. I honest to God thought he was dead. So I go running down to medical, down the old three level, down the ladderway, zooming down five decks, get down in there. And I and his pilot's leaning on the doorway in there and medical, and he's getting sewn up on this examining table. And uh, slap Mark on the shoulder, say, hey, great job, dude. And then I lean over. Keith and Keith's laying face up and he's all beat up. His eyes are all puffy and he's bruised and he's wheezing and rasping and stuff. And I look over and I go, yo. And he goes, hey, paddles. He goes, what'd you give my pilot for a landing grid? And I go, I gave him an okay underline. Of course, he did exactly what I, I told him to. Of course, we grade all these grades. Now, remember, Keith's passed out about 4,000 feet above the carrier. He wasn't even awake for the whole thing. Anyway, right through that, he rasped me. He goes, well, from where I was, he was high all the way. <laughs> so there's there's dark humor in naval aviation. He's getting sewn up and he's making jokes with me, you know, coming back halfway you know, down. And it's funny, is he, he remembers passing out. He woke up and he actually thought, he's like, I guess we didn't take off. What am I doing sitting on top of the airplane? <laughs> you know, so then it came back to him. You were the executive officer of the USS Carl Vinson after the 9-11 attacks. You later commanded the USS Nimitz during strikes in the Middle East. It seems to me that as a leader, training pilots is dangerous enough considering what they have to go through. But then you find yourselves in a combat situation and you're not just worried about their skill sets and mechanical issues. You're also sending these pilots into enemy fire. So how do you build the level of trust with your reports so they can confidently go into that combat environment with you as their leader? You're competent enough to lead them. You have the skills to lead them. So they know that you have the skill sets to lead, especially in the naval aviation or special operators or anybody on the ground in a small team you know, any ground combat at all, you know, you have to trust the person that's next to you. And I can't claim to, you know, being in those kind of situations, like on the ground, people are shooting right at you from not very far away, but it's the same approach. They've got to be able to know you're competent. They also have to know that you're confident in the solution set that you're going to present to them. And they got to know that be able to trust you, that they're going to follow you to go do that. And you build that trust. The way you build that trust is you have to connect with them on a human level. You have to be able to you know, reach out to them so they can understand you and you can understand them. They've got to know that you've got their back in a 
combat situation, whether you're in the air in any kind of aviation and you're watching each other's six to make sure nobody rolls in on you, or whether you're on the ground with somebody, you got to know that you're protecting each other all the time. And they have to know that you've got their back and, and you've got to know that they've got your back. So you got to build that relationship early. What I found in all of my career and my assignments was when I let go of my title and I just presented myself as a human being, an approachable human being who was concerned about their welfare and was good enough to know what we were doing and what we needed to do, that connection created the trust. And then no matter what we were going to do, whether I just issued a direct order, snap, go right now, don't even think, go, jump, they're going to do it. Or whether we had some time to think about course of action one or two, they already knew to be familiar with me and how I operated. If you're not that kind of person, you're going to have a hard time getting people to trust you in a high stress situation like combat, or you are that kind of person, but you just dropped in and now you're new the ability to demonstrate that you know what you're doing and to be able to, you know, say, do this and also to reach out and trust those key leaders that are on your team. So you got a key enlisted senior enlisted person or a key senior officer that's on your team and you, and you maybe defer to them and say, Hey, Hey, Jim, how do you see this? Do you see this a different way? You know, back me up here. I'm willing to be backed up. You create that situation before you get in the high stress environment that requires them to just trust you without even knowing who you are. In my career, as I grew up in seniority, people just kind of knew. First of all, they know nasty. And then second of all, they kind of know based on my position what I had been trained to do. So they knew I had the confidence based on reputation. You know, you see it in the two Top Gun movies. You know, you, you watch it play out. Now it's all movie making and, you know, they got to create the conflict, the interpersonal conflict and stuff. But that sort of reputation and trust, that's real stuff. You spend a career building that, but I found that the real basis, that foundation has got to be trust. You're confident in your abilities and they know you're competent in your skill set. And you really see that play out in the special skill set areas like aviation, special operators, you know, in any country where you kind of know somebody says something to you and you figure out who they are, what their background is, you pretty much get an instant trust thing. And that goes a long way. You know, it's interesting, actually, in preparing for this interview, I saw some YouTube interviews with you and articles, and it was actually amazing how many people commenting on those were former sailors who reported to you. And universally, they were saying things like, he was the best admiral I ever served under. And you don't always get that with leaders in any kind of field. So clearly your approach worked. Being the CEO of the aircraft carrier, I'm CEO of USS Nimitz, best job in the galaxy ever, anywhere, ever. I mean, oh my gosh, 5,000 people, two nuclear reactors, airport on the roof, you know, 70 airplanes, and there's always something going on. I had a ball. It's such a great time. And I felt really connected to my crew. And so I really tried hard. Everybody knows I'm the captain, but I really tried hard not to be the captain, like all the time, and to like come down on people unless I, I had to get folks moving or whatever. And so I really worked hard to be a very approachable person. And I kept my tone as positive as possible. And I wanted to connect with everybody and say, hey, this is, we're all out here together. And then the second thing I did was I communicated a lot. I mean, I would talk on the general announcing system every night and I'd be all fired up. You know, we're in the middle of deployment. We're months away from home. We haven't been to port in, you know, maybe two months and we're steaming around and 
life as a captain, pretty good, especially on a Navy ship, right? I'm kind of a dick. All those other people, life, especially for the more junior, life's not so good. And I thought about that all the time. And so I wanted to reach the most homesick, lonely, unhappy, overworked, overtired sailor, hadn't had a good meal in, in a couple of days, maybe grabbed a hot dog or something. And I wanted to reach that person and just tell them what was going on. And, yeah. and I think that connection and that I really broadcast as, as hard as I could that I cared about every member of the crew. And that I know how, you know, how much they're hard they're working. And I know it sucks. And I know we're out here. And, you know, and, but I would always turn it. I go, hey, where would you want to be? Come on. This is great. People pay to go on cruise. Come on. We're out here for free. You know. <laughs> when you retired from the Navy, you went into the private sector as a vice president of Boeing. As a leader, was it challenging going from the very structured environment of the military to being a leader in a civilian workplace? You know, the whole point of the, the, the book with the leadership lessons and the way that I wrote the book, um, you know, we asked ourselves who the target audience is when we were writing. It. And obviously, you know, U.S. Naval Academy graduate, top gun fighter pilot, admiral, drove a ship. OK, well, great. OK, so if you see yourself there, all right, you read the book. But we really thought about, as we say in the intro, you know, if you're a grandparent and you're trying to influence your grandson or your granddaughter, you're a leader. If you're a member of a church or a nonprofit, you're a leader. If you're any kind of a manager at all, you're a leader. You know, it applies across the board. And we think the leadership lessons apply in any organization. And that was driven home to me. So I've been in the private sector now for five and a half years since retiring from 36 years of naval service. My thoughts about leadership started in 1997 when I was about to take command of VF-31, the F-14 squadron it dawned on me that I was about to be the person in command. Holy crap. It's like a you know, big medicine ball on top of my shoulders. Like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm now responsible. And I literally asked somebody at the bar one time approaching this. We're just sitting there, two of us on a Friday afternoon. Nobody come in yet. We're like, hey, why is morale important? I can just order them to do it, right? And a lot of people think that in the military, all you do is order them and they go do it. So leadership in the military is easy because you just order them and they go do that. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Sure, you could order people. In a civilian world, you can lead with your title. Hey, I'm the boss. I say to do it. People will do it, but they won't try hard. They won't try their best. They won't think of the out-of-the-box solution sets, and they will never, ever fail for you. And in order to really learn, you have to fail. And in order to get anybody to fail, they have to trust that you have their back. And when they fail, you're going to pick them up and go, hey, OK, we learned something here, didn't we? We, not you. We did. Now, sometimes, you know, I would allow people to fail. And so there you see that I learned that, too. And so a lot of my leadership style, as demonstrated in the book, is I wanted to show people I failed all the way up. You know, I failed to Caracol the first time in A4s. I failed to select for an aircraft carrier years later until the very last look. And every single one of those failures, I got up and I kept going. So resilience is a piece of it. So you gotta fail to learn. But if you order people or morale's not high, or you don't convince people you're leading with them from your heart and not with your title, they won't perform and you won't get a high performing team. What I found in my transition from the military into the civilian world is the leadership skills are identical. The difference between 
the civilian world and the and my military world is I kind of knew what everybody's skill sets were in the military. And so I have to work harder in the civilian world to understand where everybody's skill sets are. But once you figure that out, the leadership of those people, the effective leadership of those people where you lead your human connection with them and not with your title, that's where the secret is. It's over any organization. It's the same, Dan. Leading people is the same. They want to trust you. They want to know that they can connect with you. Everybody wants to be part of something bigger than themselves. Everybody wants to feel valued. They want you to understand why they come to work every day, what their opinion is, what their viewpoint is. And that's the same whether it's a military or civilian. One last question I have to ask you. I know that it was before your time on the ship, but the USS Nimitz has been in the news as the Pentagon commented on video from it showing pilots chasing some kind of unidentified objects that the media have dubbed as the Tic Tac UFOs. Do you have any insight into those incidents at all or any thoughts on what these objects possibly could be? It's really funny. I was talking to one of the pilots as as a friend of mine and, and I saw him several years ago Man, he was totally convinced that he was looking at something he'd never seen before. I have no idea what those things are. They're different kinds of airplanes, but there's one that's a, that's an F-18 Super Hornet HUD. It's got a lock on that, what looks like an, you know, an infrared contact. And watching the motion of that thing, I, I haven't seen anything fly like that either. I don't know. For your listeners, I'm not kidding. I raised my right hand and, and swear to you, I don't know of anything you know, military-wise that would move like that. Sometimes the United States, you know, has some pretty good capabilities in the air and we keep them extremely secret. So who knows what it could be? It could be a military system, could be something there's people that like to think that, you know, they're alien objects or something. But the movements, I'm used to watching a heck of a lot of, of airplanes and relative motion on a HUD video. But boy, you get something moving like that in, in a tactical airplane video. It's, it's something that is not normal. I'll only tell you that in talking to one of the pilots, he was pretty amazed. It's going pretty fast, trying to catch the thing, didn't go. I'll send it reverse, go the other direction almost immediately. And, and of course, it's kind of shaped kind of strangely too, or at least it looks like it is anyway. But no, I, I don't know anything about that. 